Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are now in Lesson 43 in the Torah series that I've entitled The Gospel According to Moses, and we're in the book of Exodus. Now, we're going to pick up the journey of God's people, the Hebrews, after they left Egypt, and they're on their way to the mountain of God. So we're going to be picking that up in Exodus 17. Now, before we begin Exodus 17, it's important to review a concept. A concept is related to one of the goals of the series, the gospel according to Moses, whether it's the book of Genesis or, in this series, the book of Exodus. And way back when, when we started this, I said the goal is how did the Hebrews coming out of Egypt understand what we're reading? How did they look upon it in 1446 BC, 3400 years ago? Because the Torah, what we're reading, supposedly is written by Moses, that's my belief, and it's written to them. It's not written to us. So we've got to put the Bible in its historical context. How did they view this stuff? Now in lesson four of this series on Exodus in part two, we go into a study and the beginning of the book of Exodus that the Hebrews assimilated into the Egyptian culture. Ray Vanderland, who was one of the instrumental teachers in my life in Israel and in Turkey, he basically says on one of his videos that the Hebrews bought into the wrong story. We have the story of the God of Israel and we have the story of the gods of Egypt. And God's story, God's worldview, is truth and everything else is untruth. So in ancient, ancient Egypt, the Hebrews understood that there was a battle between Isfit and Ma'at. Two Egyptian words. Isfit means chaos. Ma'at means order. Now we expand that a little bit. Not necessarily chaos as, you know, there's a riot in the streets and it's chaos and people are throwing junk around and, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails and so on. It's more dealing with the idea that it's related to disorder. It's related to untruth. It's related to death and suffering and ugliness. Ma'at, order, is related to truth, uh, harmony, things working together, life, prosperity, beauty. Now in ancient Egypt, the Hebrews bought into this worldview. They had forgotten the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they knew that Pharaoh, the king, his main purpose was to preserve ma'at and prevent isfit, preserve order and prevent chaos. Preserve truth and harmony in life, prosperity, beauty, having all things work together for the good of all people and to prevent chaos, disorder and death and suffering and ugliness. So, in ancient Egypt in those days, Egypt itself, which was just really the fertile land right next to the Nile River, that was considered the land of, of order, the land of Ma'at. But the Sinai wilderness and the Sahara Desert, that's called the land of death, the land of danger, the land of chaos. Matter of fact, Egypt was considered the land of Ma'at. She became a goddess. So this concept of order and harmony and truth in Moses' day, actually becomes a winged goddess. And the god Set is the god of disorder. He is the god of the Sinai. He is the god of the Sahara. He is the god of the desert lands, the wilderness. And the Hebrews got it. They understood this. <laughs> What's going on here is God the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he brings his people into chaos. He takes them out of order and brings them into a land of disorder and death, a place of scorpions and the cobra and suffering. 
And so no wonder the Hebrews say a couple of different times. You can read this in Exodus 16, verse 3, and there's a couple of other places. We'll, we'll bump into it again as we come into Exodus 17. But in Exodus 16, 3, the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. You can see this is part of that Egyptian worldview. They still have it. They're only days, really, out of Egypt. And it takes a long time to get that worldview, to get that cultural influence that they've assimilated into out of them. So they're taking a look at the fact that they're, they're in the middle of, the, of chaos. Now, I linked you to Lesson 4, Part 2, so that you can study that concept of how did the Hebrews assimilate into the Egyptian culture before slavery, way before slavery. So, I mean, Joseph was still alive, uh, Jacob dies, they bury Jacob uh, in uh, Canaan um, at the cave of Machpelah in Hebron. And Joseph is still alive, Joseph dies, and there's years and years that go by where the Hebrews are in the Egyptian culture, and, and it's clear from the Bible. They, they bought into that culture and probably assimilated into it. So you can study this further and to see the rationale behind the idea that the Hebrews assimilated into the Egyptian culture in Lesson 4, Part 2, and I've linked you to that, so go to the website, www.lightamenorah.org. And remember, Light of Menorah is all one word, no spaces. Menorah, M-E-N-O-R-A-H. M-E-N-O-R-A-H. Now, I know probably many of you who are listening to this podcast are probably not following all of the lessons in Exodus. Maybe a few of you are. So my assumption is many of you who are listening to this lesson today have not heard the extremely important lesson that develops the concept that the Hebrews bought into the wrong culture. So I really highly recommend that you go to the website, look for the picture that's related to this one, Lesson 43 in Exodus, and you'll see Moses there uh, with his arms spread out left and right, uh, and uh, Aaron and uh, the son of Hur uh, there holding up his arms when they're battling the Amalekites. So go there, and underneath that picture, you'll find additional information with regards to this podcast and that link. So again, it's very important that you actually get a hold of this as we continue on our way to Sinai and the giving of the covenant of God at Sinai. So it seems easy to conclude that God, Yahweh, is trying to teach his chosen people that there's no battle between chaos and order. If we're truly his people, if we're truly his sons and his daughters, he brings us his order Shalom. That's a better definition of shalom. Shalom is God's ma'at, God's order, his prosperity, his peace, the way things work together. God's shalom in the midst of chaos. He was teaching them then, but he's teaching us now. It's like David. I think he got it. In Psalm 23, David is saying God's our shepherd, which means God has a staff. And it's just like what's going on. When we take a look, when we get into Exodus 17, Moses talks about the staff that he had as a shepherd is now God's staff. God is their shepherd. And we are his sheep. And he's feeding us in the wilderness, in the midst of the chaos. And this is what's going on in David's day. Normally, especially during the winter months, David took his sheep into the wilderness, into the wadis and the dry riverbeds, where 
during the rainy season, this is where grass is going to grow. So he brings them into chaos, brings them into the dangerous places. So God is saying to Israel then and to us now that we are his sheep and we have all we need. Not all we need to be successful in ministry. Not all we need to have all the riches that we need so that we're not going to be suffering when there's high inflation and high gas prices. No, we'll have everything we need to be his sheep in chaos. So just those sheep under David, they're surrounded by death and danger. As the Hebrews were, they're in chaos. Psalm 23, it's the valley of the shadow of death, but we read that he is with us. He was, he was, he was with them then in 1446 BC. David gets it. He's saying God is with us now. Then back in about 1000 BC when David was a shepherd boy and for us now. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So when we put the Bible in its historical context, you guys, it, it expands our understanding. It expands our view of what's happening in here. And we see that the lessons in Exodus was God's instruction, his Torah, for them then. But it's God's instruction, his Torah, for us now. So let's begin. Let's take a look at the first first few verses of Exodus 17. So reading from the New American Standard Bible, reading chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, that all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wildernesses of Tzin, according to the command of Yahweh, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt? to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. You see what's happening again? Again, for the Hebrews, and you can, you got to feel sorry for them. They are so ingrained into this worldview of Egypt that they're in the midst of death. They're in the midst of thirst. They could die here. This is chaos. This is how many of them understand the Sinai wilderness. So you can see that Here's that statement that verifies that they're coming out of Egypt and buying into that worldview. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they'll stone me. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Miravah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So again, these first seven verses again really relate to this idea of how they bought into the Egyptian culture. They have, they're going deeper and deeper into Isfit, deeper and deeper into the chaos of the Sinai wilderness. Now it seems clear that they're obeying God as they travel, because it talks about in verses 17, 1 through 2, that according to the command of the Lord... In other words, God commanded and they were following him. So you can go to Numbers um, chapter 9, verse 15. And in there we talk about the fact that the Hebrews stopped when the cloud stopped because God was before them in a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And that the Hebrews moved when the cloud moved. In Exodus 13, God says in verses 21 through 22 that God, Yahweh, the Lord 
he says that about he will be before them as the cloud in during the day and also the fire the pillar of fire by night now god it's clear because they're following his command they're stopping at rephidim god ordered it not moses the implication is though the torah doesn't say it that the cloud stopped so god must have known there was no water at rephidim he must have known and again this relates to his people the hebrews who bought into the egyptian culture they're looking at death around them and saying wait a minute look what pharaoh did pharaoh present prevented this or fought against it now the people are having a quarrel with moses now the hebrew word there is not quarrel the hebrew word there is rave h7378 strong's number and it's more than quarrel you'll always get a picture especially when you get into the root word for hebrew words and it talks about pulling one's hair in other words this anger this was not just quarreling i mean it's almost that they wanted to hurt him i mean it's you know grab moses and pull out his hair let's stone him now one of the things that we heard moses say is why are you testing the lord and we have to remember there's been four tests so far you can go back to chapter 14, Exodus 14, starting in verse 10. Pharaoh's army is approaching. They turned against Moses in chapter 15, verse 24, or starting in verse 24. There's the bitter waters at Marah. And again, they grumbled against Moses. And you can find these statements. Why are you taking us into the wilderness to die? Again, isfit, chaos. Chapter 16, starting in verse 1. In the Wadi scene, they worried about food. And again, they wanted to attack Moses. And now we've got this fourth test. And we can see what's going on with these tests. God is actually trying to discipline his people and show him who he is. They probably already believe in God. But the thing is, they don't have that deep, intimate trust relationship with God to understand what he can do in the midst of chaos. And so they're blaming Moses. Moses is not Yahweh. He's not the Lord. And the Hebrews haven't gotten it yet. They're perhaps looking at Moses as Pharaoh. You say, wait a minute. We looked upon a man back in Egypt who was to prevent this stuff and fight against chaos. Moses, we're looking to you. We can see you. You're, you're our Pharaoh. And God, God needs to stop this. Definitely Moses is not a Pharaoh. All he is is his servant to help work with God to lead them to the promised land so the hebrews haven't got it yet they're so they're so deeply attached again to the egyptian worldview so again the lord is trying again and again to train his elect to train his chosen people israel to look to him to turn away from the dependence on man so again, this fourth test, like the others, is orchestrated by God, engineered by God. He wants his people to rely on him, just like us. The lesson was important for them then in 1446 BC, and it's important for us today, 3,400 years later. Especially in the chaos that the world is getting deeper and deeper into it's as if we are in that sinai wilderness and it's we're going deeper and deeper into the wilderness deeper and deeper into chaos in the troubled times today not only here in the united states but across the world god wants us to turn to him to seek his help god brought them to rephidim he knew there was no water god knew what they needed even before they started started quarreling with moses rave even before they started wanting to get to moses to tear out his hair the lord is training his people don't count on moses count on yahweh count on adonai
Now, Jesus, who's God, he's saying the same thing to his disciples. The message hasn't changed. Are we surprised? Malachi 3, 6, God says, I am the Lord and I do not change. What God said back in Exodus in 1446 BC, Jesus said and repeated and brings to us to today. And take a look at this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. When you pray, you are not to be like hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. Now here's the statement I'm after. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The Lord knew what his people needed at Rephidim before he asked them. He knows what they needed back in 1446 B.C. Jesus is teaching the same thing. Psalm 23, verse 4. And even if I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. David is saying the same concept. We have our own Rephidim. We come into situations in our lives high inflation, high gas prices. A set of leaders in our country that are anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-truth, anti-Christian, anti-Jew, anti-Israel. God knows it. And no matter what, he's with us and he knows what we need. So let's continue in Exodus. And again, we're in chapter 17. And let's read verses 4 through 6. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people a little more, and they will stone me? Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So Moses fears for his life, and it's kind of interesting because now you see the impact of that Hebrew word re'iv. It's more than quarrel. And he commands Moses and the elders to go to a place called Horeb. Now, many people who say that Mount Sinai has another name, Mount Horeb, or its actual pronunciation in Hebrew is Horeb. However, when we actually study the Bible and we look at it very carefully and look at the text very carefully, it could very well be that Horeb is more of a region than it is a mountain. Quoting from Nahum Sarna and the JPS Torah Commentary, Sarna says, Many texts seem to want to identify this location with Sinai, that is Horeb, and I'm pronouncing it Horeb. But there's also indications that they may not be identical. There is the impression that there's some distance between the two, and this is gained from the story of this water crisis at Rephidim. So what happens is they're going to be, or Moses and the elders are going to go to Horeb or enter Horeb, but there seems to be some distance because they haven't arrived at Sinai yet. Rephidim seems to be the last station of the Israelites before entering the wilderness of Sinai. So Horeb, or Horeb may have been the name of a wider region. So for instance, you would say Pike's Peak is in Colorado. Colorado is like Horiv, the area, the state where Pikes Peak is located. Or for instance, I like it, uh, I've always liked go hiking 
uh, in Lake, the Lake Superior region, and the highest mountain in Minnesota is Eagle Mountain. And it's in the Arrowhead of Minnesota. Arrowhead is the region. The mountain is uh, Eagle Mountain. So it could very well be that Horev is a region and Mount Sinai is a specific peep, peak mountain in that region. Horev means desolate or dry. And its location cannot be identified. So it seems more likely to me and it makes a lot more sense that Horeb is a region and Mount Sinai is a mountain. And so that, that makes sense. They're right entering that region of the Sinai wilderness that's called Horeb. Now what's interesting is, what's cool, Moses uses the staff of God. The one where he touched the Nile and he took water away from all of Egypt because it was turned into blood. Now, he comes to a rock in the Horev region. He touches the rock and he gives water to all his people. That's very interesting. And now the elders are witnesses. And they're able to go back and to tell everyone, you know what happened? God commanded Moses to take the staff, now called the staff of God. And God gave us water. And again, we go to Matthew 6, 8. What did Jesus say? God knows what we need even before we ask. So in Exodus 17, 7, Moses named the place Massah and Miravah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested Yahweh, the Lord, saying, is Yahweh among us or not? Is the Lord among us? or not. So masa, the Hebrew word means testing. Miravah is the Hebrew word for quarreling. Now Jesus gives us even more insight to this event. So again, Dr. John Kareed relates this event to something that happened to Jesus. Quoting from Kareed's Torah commentary on Exodus, Satan tempts Jesus to throw himself off the temple to see if God would be faithful and truly save him as he promised. And this is Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Jesus answers by quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, now listen, as you tested him at Massah. This is the location that we're reading about here in Exodus 17. So Israel, when they were tested in the, in the wilderness... Israel was brought to Rephidim by God. Jesus is sent by God. Israel didn't turn to God and believe, but Jesus did. Jesus is showing us that he knew that God was with him. His Father is with him and also with us. So Israel, according to Dr. Dr. John Kareed, is saying we need to look at the book of Exodus as it relates to us today. Consider Israel the church, the church in the Old Testament. And we should learn from our forefathers and not act as the way they did at Massah and Mirabah. So for me, it's just another Torah event. And it shows an amazing lesson in God's instruction. Torah, instruction from Yahweh, the Lord Another example that God is, or God's word, is the same then and now. Another example that all scripture testifies of Yeshua. Just like he said. This is John chapter 5, verse 39. All scripture testifies of me. He says it in 24 to 30 AD. There was no New Testament. The main books of the Bible in those days was the Torah. And Jesus is basically saying, not only the Torah, but the prophets and Psalms and everything else, they all testify of me, but especially the Torah. And that's also one of the goals in the series, the gospel according to Moses, both in Genesis and Exodus. <laughs> it's just quite amazing. So we continue on in verse 8 to the end of the chapter. 
Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So they haven't moved yet, but the Amalekites attacked them. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of this hill with the staff of God in my hand. He calls the staff that was his as a shepherd back in Midian. It's now become the staff of God. He doesn't even have ownership on it anymore. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But but Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in the book as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So out of nowhere, the Amalekites attack Israel. Later on in Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 17, we can read about it, that they probably attacked them from the rear. The Amalekites, who are these guys? Now we have to go back and we remember Yitzach and Revcha, Isaac and Rebekah. They had two sons. One of them is Jacob, Yaachov, and the other one is Esau, Esau. And Yaakov, his name in Hebrew, comes from the Hebrew word akav, which means to restrain or to hold one back. And Esau, or Esau, Esau, actually, the actual pronunciation in Hebrew, means hairy. <laughs> he was born red and hairy. He had red hair, a hairy kid. Esau later on becomes to be known as Edom, and it really comes from the fact that indeed he was born red and hairy. So he had two names. Edom is probably his nickname. Now he's the father of the Edomites. So later on, Esau, he has got a number of sons. You can read this in Genesis 36. One of them was Eliphaz, Rehuel, Yehush, uh, Yolam, Korah, and Eliphaz. And Eliphaz, in Genesis 36, verse 12, and here's the key, Eliphaz has a son named Amalek. So this is the origin of the Amalekites. Amalek is the son of Eliphaz, and Eliphaz is the son of Esau, Esau. So therefore, Amalek, that boy, the grandson of Esau, becomes obviously the founder of the Amalekites, and they're Edomites. So from Esau. And Esau, he is destined to be the father of the Edomites, as dire enemies of Israel. If you remember, Esau disdained his status as the firstborn. He's disdained um, the promise that God made to, to Abraham, his grandfather, and the promise that passed to Isaac. He disdained everything. He disdained Yahweh, the Lord. And out of this, we remember that Esau says, I want to kill my brother after my father is dead and we mourn for him. And the Edomites and the Amalekites become enemies of Israel. They become anti-Israel, anti-God. And they're descendants of Isaac, who's a descendant of Abraham. This is all in the family. So the Hebrews are attacked by their relatives. The Edomites, which are now called, the, well, is the, the subgroup of the Edomites, the Amalekites. These are the, this is the family of, of, of the Red Ones. The red ones attack them, the family of blood. 
Now, there's unbelievable connections. And some of these unbelievable connections, I, I remember when I was studying the book of Esther and the historical context of the Feast of Purim. And what exploded in front of me when I was studying the book of Esther was the book of Esther, chapter 3, verse 1. And this relates to the, you might say, the evil one, the villain, in those events in the book of Esther, and that's Haman. So in Esther, chapter 3, verse 1, we read, After these events, King Asuras, which is Xerxes, promoted Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And Haman, okay, his dad was an Agagite, so therefore Haman is an Agagite. And Haman is totally evil. We go to Esther chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Then Haman said to King Asuras, Xerxes, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Haman wants to destroy all of Israel. This is genocide. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put it into the king's treasury. Haman wants to kill all of Israel, but he's an Agagite. However, when you go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 8, Saul is commanded to king to kill King Agag. King Agag has got to be the founder of this sub-tribe, this, this, this subgroup called the Agagites. And it just so happens when you read about King Agag, we find out that he is an Amalekite. King Agag, the King Agag, the Amalekite. And so Haman is a descendant of Esau. Haman is ready to exterminate all of Israel, and he is an Amalekite. And this association doesn't end there. It's going to take us through David. It's going to take us to the revolt of the Maccabees in Hanukkah. And it takes us all the way to the birth of Messiah. Now, I've already taught this in another series that I've done called Truth Nuggets. And I've linked you to that lesson, Truth Nuggets number 15, again in this lesson. So if you go into the, the website, as I instructed you before, you'll see the description uh, underneath the picture for here, lesson 43, and you'll see the link for Truth Nuggets number 15 to go into this lesson deeper on Purim and Haman and how he was an Amalekite. Also, Genesis. Lesson 65. Because in Genesis Lesson 65, we are dealing with Jacob and Esau. We are dealing with the descendants of Esau. And so again, two other lessons that relate to this. It's a huge topic. So if you're serious about Bible study, if you're serious about understanding the end times, if you're serious about understanding the day of the Lord, You've got to study Truth Nuggets number 15. You've got to study Genesis Lesson 65. So the whole descendants are the enemies of Israel like Amalek. And we think and we look upon their color as red. But the Edomites and the Amalekites, they fade from history. You know what I mean by fade from history? They're not killed off. All right, they just fade from history. There's no historical record anymore of Edomites after Jesus' day. It's just like they... I don't know, intermingled with all the Romans and Arabs and Syrians and all that type of stuff, and they just disappeared. But for the Jews, after Jesus has ascended and the temple was destroyed, the Jewish rabbis looked upon Rome as Edomites and Amalekites. Now, they weren't, 
But why would the Jews look upon Rome as Edom, as Edomites? Why? Because the army was dressed in red. And so this continues on in history. Who also wanted to destroy all the Jews? The Nazis in Germany. And what was the color of the Nazi flag? Red. So just like Haman, Hitler wanted to to exterminate the Jews. What about Stalin? And I just thank Dennis Prager for his teachings on the Torah because on this lesson specifically, on this battle between the Hebrews and the Amalekites here at Rephidim, Dennis Prager goes into commentary just like I'm doing right now, but he also says, wait a minute, don't forget Stalin in the Soviet Union. And under his rule, it was a rule of anti-Semitism, and he persecuted the Jewish people. And what was the cover color of the, 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 of the flag of the Soviet Union? Red. This goes, this goes on and on. And we finally get to the book of Revelation. In chapter 12, we read verses 3 through 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Going on to verse 9 and 10, And the great dragon, remember the great red dragon, was thrown down. He's the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, the adversary, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Satan, Satan, the adversary, <laughs> Clearly, he's the enemy of Israel. He's the enemy of all the Jewish people. He's the enemy of the Christians. He's the enemy of Jesus. Anti-Israel, anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christ. And what's the color of the great dragon? Red. It reminds us all the way back to Edomites. So don't miss Truth Nuggets number 15. Don't miss that lesson in Genesis number 65. Also, I've given you a chapter from one of my training books. With the bibliography. And this is the story about Esther and Haman, Purim, and I take it all the way to Jesus and all the way to the end times. And I, like I said, I have included my bibliography, and it's free. And again, it's linked to you here at the website as you take a look at the additional material that I have provided for this podcast. So Moses faces the Amalekites in this battle, and he had a staff. We first read about it in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. And God uses it again and again. Both Aaron's staff and Moses' staff during the plagues. So it seems clear that Moses is saying, this is the staff of God. Moses seems to be telling us that he's counting on Yahweh to help them in the battle. Now just as an aside, in Psalm 23, starting in verse 4, we read, and, it, and uh, even if I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff are with me. It's very interesting, that phrase, the rod, thy rod and thy staff are with me. They comfort me. That has an alternative equivalent translation, which for me makes more sense. I won't go into all the geography behind it or the ancient culture behind it of shepherds. But when we read, thy rod and thy staff, they, they comfort me, it can also actually be equivalently translated as, 
your shepherd's staff and your care for me comfort me. Now what I find fascinating is if we take the equivalent translation in Hebrew that your shepherd's staff, your staff, the staff of God and your care for me is my comfort. This relates to Exodus because it's the same thing that's going on here. The staff of God, Moses seeing that this staff has now turned into the staff of God that God is using this and God is caring for his people. He provides the water in the midst of chaos at Rephidim. And all of a sudden, Psalm 23 explodes in meaning if we look at the equivalent translation. Yahweh provides the victory as Moses trusts in God to give them the victory at Rephidim. God commanding Moses to use the staff, the staff of God. Now, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14 poses a question. So verse 14 is, then the, Moses, then the Lord said, then Yahweh said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So I'm going to go to Dennis Prager's Torah commentary in his book called Exodus, the Rational Bible. And again, as it relates to this specific verse, Dennis goes on to say, this verse seems to contain a contradiction. We're supposed to remember the nation of Amalek, yet God is going to blot out Amalek's memory. Which is it? Perhaps the point is that we are to remember great evil, but ideally the perpetrators of evil are forgotten. Now I'm going to add to this because God says he's going to be at war. This is in the last verse of chapter 17 and verse 16. God is going to be at war. Midor dor. Generation to generation. Age to age for all time. He's going to be at war with Amalek and he wants us to remember this. Moses is writing this down. So God is eventually going to destroy Amalek. God is going to eventually be victorious. But it doesn't have to be something that would be, you might say, happening before the time of Messiah. Because in the Messianic age, all the enemies of Israel will be gone. They will be defeated. Those who are like Amalek, those who are like Edom will be gone. But till then, we're to be aware of the evil ones among us, the terrible evil ones among us. And we're to write it down to remember the evil ones. And don't forget, because until Messiah comes, until the Messianic age, the battle of evil will always be in front of us. Until Messiah arrives, will finally Amalek be defeated and remembered no more. So for me, when I take a look at this, I can see this question that comes up. But when I consider and I take it all the way to the coming of Jesus, his return, it just makes so much sense that this is about the end of the age. Prager goes on to say, those who do evil, from the mass murders in our societies to the monsters of genocide, all want to make a name for themselves. They should not be rewarded in this way. Perhaps that is why the Torah leaves out the name of Pharaoh, who ordered the murder of the Israelite babies in order to ensure his acts are, are remembered, but not his name. To this day, when Jews speak of, of a particular evil figure in the modern period, Hitler, they will often follow the mention of, his, of the person's name with these words, May his name and memory be blotted out. Yemach shemo vezikrono. The end of the age when Messiah returns. The great red dragon, the devil, 
the one who seems to be the epitome of the Edomites and the Amalekites will be defeated forever. So the Edomites and Amalekites were real people, real enemies. But could it be that God is saying that this doesn't end? That certainly the Amalekites and the Edomites fade from history, but Rome has the color red, Hitler has the color red in terms of the Nazi flag, Stalin, Soviet Union, their flag was the color red. And we finally come to Satan himself in the book of Revelation, the great red dragon, the ultimate Edomite, the most evil of the Amalekites. So again, it reminds us of those words back in the book of Revelation. Chapter 20, starting in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Hasatan, and bound him for a thousand years. The great red dragon is bound. And he threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. We go to verse 7 in chapter 20 of Revelation. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever. So we will continue on with the journey. as his people, the Hebrews, are headed to Sinai. So I will see you in Lesson 44. Until then, Shalom.